Well, good morning again. My name is Dane. For those of you who don't know me, I serve as the pastor here, and it is a joy to open up God's Word with you. Have you ever been in a situation where you encountered such a clear, pressing need that you were immediately moved to respond? A medical need where you needed to administer CPR, or a wandering child at a, at a theme park, you're moved to help shepherd that little one to his or her parent. The sight or smell of smoke in a neighbor's apartment, you call 911. These are situations of urgency that move us immediately to respond. I want to explore with you a passage of scripture where we see the same kind of urgency and immediacy in responding. Now, we're familiar with this, with physical needs. What we're less attuned to is the urgency of spiritual needs and the immediacy of responding that it also requires. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17. In the Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find Acts 17 on page 926. If you're here today and you don't have a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one in the entryway where you came in. There are some black hardcover uh, Bibles there that you're welcome to take there on, on the bookcase. Uh, so we're going to begin Acts chapter 17, uh, reading verses 16 through 34. We're continuing in a series that we began in September called Church on Mission. And what we're doing is walking through the entirety of the book of Acts in about a year's time. So we'll finish at the end of August. And it is opportuned this morning on Easter Sunday that we get to see a picture of the proclamation of the resurrected Lord. So as we read this passage, notice the emphasis on the resurrection. Paul's response to a deep spiritual need is proclamation, and the content of his proclamation is resurrection. And it stirs people up. Some mock, some contemplate, some believe. But it's the proclamation of the resurrection that is his response to this urgent spiritual need. So let's take a look, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Luke, the author, writes, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. What we witness in this passage is a man moved by the spiritual need before him. The Apostle Paul enters a city thick with idolatry. People in Athens bowing down, giving themselves to lesser things, images of wood and metal and clay, things that do not save and do not satisfy. They're given over to these things, and his heart breaks, and he's moved to act. We find this fourfold progression of Paul's gospel ministry in Athens. We see a burdened heart, we see thoughtful engagement, we see powerful proclamation, and then we see a mixed response. That's the fourfold progression that will serve as an outline of our time in this passage. A burdened heart for people, thoughtful engagement with people, a powerful message to people, and a mixed response from people. That's our outline. And our goal this morning is to equip and encourage ourselves to engage in our own context, in our own spheres of influence, for God has placed each one of his followers strategically in a place where you regularly cross paths with people who are desperate for him. So we want to equip and encourage ourselves this morning through this passage. Well, at this time in history, Athens stood as a hub of education and intellectualism and philosophy. People wanted nothing more than to hear something new. It was an epicenter of education and progressive thinking. Does this sound familiar to you? Friends, we live in the epicenter of education here in greater Boston. Yet as intellectually rich as Athens was, it was spiritually bankrupt. As cutting edge as it was intellectually, it was dreadfully dull spiritually. And one afternoon, a faithful servant of Jesus heralds the life-transforming message of the gospel of Jesus, his death and resurrection. And a few lives are touched. What a beautiful work. Friends, we live 
in an area of incredible need, but with need comes opportunity. Every day we cross paths with people who are giving themselves to lesser things. And what might it look like for us to lovingly engage with them? with this message that is sufficient to change, sufficient to transform. So it moves Paul. Have in mind the vision of transformation. Stories like Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris, who become followers of Jesus in the midst of that idolatrous setting through the proclamation of Paul because he engaged. Have in vision people's lives change, just a steady stream of transformation through our church, through other church plants, other established churches throughout greater Boston that are proclaiming this good message. So first, let's consider a burdened heart for people. That's what we see first. We're confronted with Paul's burdened heart. Luke tells us in verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, if you're here for the first time, you've not been with us for the first 16 chapters in Acts, here's a, a, just a brief review of what we've just seen. So Paul sees this vision. He sees a, a call. A man of Macedonia says to Paul while he's in Asia Minor, come over here and help us. Macedonia, northern Greece. Paul goes, and he preaches in Thessalonica three Sabbath days in a row, proclaims the gospel. He's chased out of town by a hostile, hostile collection of Jews. He goes a little bit west to Berea. And they warmly welcome him in the synagogue, but when people from Thessalonica, Thessalonica go to Berea, stir up the crowds, he's then chased out of there. Paul then heads south with a group of people to Athens, but he leaves behind two of his ministry teammates, Silas and Timothy, in Berea, but he waits in Athens for those two brothers, Silas and Timothy, to come down and meet him. But while he's waiting, he's witnessing, and what he witnesses breaks his heart. And so even without his team, he just goes solo and starts preaching. He's a man moved by the, the burden of idolatry before him. Luke tells us his spirit was provoked within him. The word provoked means to be cut to the heart, deeply disturbed and troubled by what you see. He's cut to the heart. You have precious people created in the image of God, giving themselves to things that are not God, that don't save and they don't satisfy. He's, he's burdened. He's broken over this idolatry. These are people created by God in his image to worship him. And that's true for every human being. We are created to worship God alone. The French mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal once wrote, there is a God-shaped void, a God-shaped hole in every human soul, and only one thing fits it. The creator God who reveals himself through Jesus Christ. And we try to jam every other thing in there like a square peg into a round hole and it never fits. It leaves us empty and hollow. This is the burden that Paul had. Friends, this is the burden, if you're a follower of Jesus, that we have today in the midst of our own idolatrous setting. Just consider our own lives. You see, we practice a more subtle, a more sophisticated kind of idolatry. Most of us in this context don't bow down to images and figurines of wood, clay, and metal. And there's some who do that. You take a, a, a ride up to Salem, you will see some of that. But for the most part, 
we have a more subtle, more sophisticated way of committing idolatry. You see, an idol is anything that you set your affections on apart from God and when taken from you, leaves you in despair. It's anything that you set your heart on. You look to for stability, for security, for identity. And when it's stripped away, you're left in a state of despair. That's just a diagnostic question to identify idols. What is it in your life that you look to, that you set your affections on? Oh, that does not satisfy you. In fact, leaves you empty. Idols always overpromise and always underdeliver. That's the nature of idolatry. It can be something that you run to, a substance, a relationship, a title, an educational degree, a hobby. It can be something that you run from, a responsibility, accountability, the fear of what somebody thinks of you. It can be a good thing, like family, like raising children, like education. But good things, when placed in an ultimate position, become unhealthy things. Those good gifts were never meant by the giver to be in that place in your life. They need to be subordinate to him, the giver. So good things become idols when placed in an ultimate position in your life. What are you elevating to an ultimate position in your life that was never intended to be there? John Calvin once wrote, the human heart is an idol-producing factory. Our hearts are proficient factories churning out idols daily. To be human is to worship. That's how God has wired us. We will inevitably look to something outside ourselves to satisfy us. And can I ask you, what are you looking to this morning for satisfaction? And is it truly satisfying you? Or is it bringing you back, over-promising, under-delivering? That's the nature of idolatry. There is only one who satisfies our souls, the living God, creator God, who made us to know him, to worship him. He is the only one who fits that void deep in our souls. Having come to terms with our own idolatry, how do we then respond to the idolatry all around us? Well, Paul's response is instructive. A heart that has encountered God's grace is broken over the idolatry in others. A heart that's found satisfaction from God is broken over people running all kinds of places to find satisfaction to no avail. I had a recent conversation with a friend who has known incredible success in real estate. Transaction after transaction, amount of money after amount of money. And he had the wherewithal to just say to me at a Dunkin' Donuts, more properties does not mean more happiness for me. But like an addiction, I just keep going back to it. And I just hurt for this friend who is spot on with his self-assessment. More properties does not mean more happiness. It's like he knew, but he still went. It's over-promising, under-delivering always, but we keep going back. We had an opportunity just to segue to a spiritual conversation. The difference between storing up 
earthly treasures versus storing up heavenly treasures in Christ. Think about your own context, your sphere of influence, the the paths, the routines that the Lord has placed you upon, the natural rhythms of your life and where you intersect with other people. Ask God to sensitize you to the spiritual need all around you. Ask God to give you eyes to see people, how he sees people. Jesus would look at the masses with eyes of compassion and see them as sheep without a shepherd in need of him, in need of his grace, in need of his truth. Pray that God would provoke your heart in the midst of your own context, burden you, because it's that burden that will then move us outward to engage, and that's what we see next in the passage. Paul's burdened heart moves him to engage. And notice it's a thoughtful engagement. So that's the next step. We see a burdened heart. Next we see thoughtful engagement. In verse 17, Luke tells us, So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Well, as was Paul's custom, when he went to a new city, he would go to the synagogue. Why does he do that? Because he has a base of theological understanding in the synagogue. These are, these are Jews who believe in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so Paul would go there and open up the Hebrew Scriptures and show how they pointed forward to Jesus, the Messiah. So he had a base of understanding. He would go there, oftentimes would get booted out of there, and then he would go to the public forum, like the marketplace. He didn't get booted out we're not told so, but he goes nonetheless to the marketplace, to that cultural center of civic life, of commerce and conversation. He goes there to that place where people were always looking to hear something new, some philosophy, some progressive thought, and he begins to preach the gospel there. He's engaging comprehensively in the synagogue with people who are familiar with the things of God, in the marketplace among Gentiles with people who are not familiar with the things of God. What's he doing? He is spending himself to inject the gospel into whatever context he can. Because if spiritual change is going to happen in Athens, it's going to be by the systematic injection of the gospel into all of these corners of society. So he goes to the synagogue, he goes to the marketplace. He takes every opportunity to inject the gospel into the veins, the lifeblood of the city of Athens. This is how spiritual change takes place in a city. Followers of Jesus, moved by a burden to engage people in their context, to speak, to share, and to show the love of Christ. So it is in our context today. The only hope for spiritual change in greater Boston is people and churches engaging their communities with the truth of the gospel from a burdened heart moved outward to engage, to share, and to show the love of Christ, to be little lighthouses in a dark place popping up. This is what thrills us about being engaged in the work of multiplication here in greater Boston. Playing a part in planting a church like we just did two weeks ago, April 3rd, in Bedford, just a few miles north and west of, of here. I wanted to give a little update since I've not been here in two weeks. A couple pictures from Trinity Church of Bedford so that you can pray for this community. They, that, that Scott Cope, our church planting friend who's there now working, preaching now as I'm preaching here. 
But that's, that was their start. The picture of their congregation on day one and a picture of Scott preaching. That's how we move the needle little by little in New England is through multiplication, people engaging in their community, sharing the gospel, showing the gospel. So what rhythms do you have in your life? What paths do you regularly cross where other people are there? And what might it look like to strategically take the next step of engagement? We will interact with people who are familiar with the things of God, perhaps people who have a a church background. A next step for them would be, hey, tell me about your spiritual background. You'd be surprised how many people are open to talking about their spiritual background. Would Would you mind just sharing kind of the context that you grew up in, maybe your spiritual or church background? Some people that we cross paths with have no experience with church, no knowledge of Christianity. But as you befriend them, you get to know their own hurts, their heartache, their challenges. A gospel on-ramp is just to ask them to share ways, ways that they are discouraged, ways that they are hurting, ways that you can pray for them. Every heartache is a means of pointing to hope. Because Christ, that, that's the good news of the resurrection. People should want the resurrection to be true because it makes every sad thing untrue. That, that's, that's the picture of the resurrection. Life from death, light from darkness, it's a foretaste of what will come. Jesus' resurrection is a first fruits of what is to come. Every sad thing is going to become untrue. Every broken thing is going to be mended and made whole. So every opportunity that you have in conversation with people as they share brokenness, it's an opportunity to point to hope in Christ. If you follow him, he's going to make every sad and disappointing thing reversed in his presence when he comes again. Consider the manner in which Paul engaged people in Athens. His demeanor, we see in verse 17, he reasoned with them. Notice, he didn't argue with them. He reasoned with them, respectfully discussed with them. I had a campus minister in grad school who said to a team of students who were going to Panama City Beach, Florida in 2004 to engage spring breakers. He said, you're going to have a lot of opportunity to share the gospel, but know this. Evangelism is a conversation to be had, not an argument to be won. The minute an evangelistic conversation turns argumentative, the promise of belief plummets. Evangelism is not an argument to be won. It's a conversation to be had. People will seek to defend themselves. If you get hot under the collar, just calm down and listen and bring the gospel to bear as they share with you. Paul reasoned with them respectfully. He didn't belittle them. There's a natural humility that he operates out of. Skeptical people will sniff out smugness in us. Skeptical people will smell our pride a mile away. Put it away. Put it away. Operate out of humility A man named William Carey, known as the father of modern missionary, the father father of the modern missionary movement, was a cobbler, humble beginnings. He literally fixed the soles of shoes for a living for half his life until God stirred his heart, burdened his heart for the unreached people of India. And so in 1793, he traveled to Calcutta, India, and he served there for 41 years 
a man of little education, a hardworking cobbler who was a brilliant linguist, translated the Bible into Bengali and Hindi and a multitude of other dialects that are still used, fruits of Carrie's ministry still bearing forth. But he operated out of the utmost humility. The story is told of him among some cultural elites a year or two into his ministry who sought to discredit him and embarrass him publicly and said, Mr. Carey, we understand that you made shoes in England before coming to us in India. Is that true? And William Carey said, no, that's, that's actually not true. Uh, I didn't make shoes. Uh, I didn't have the ability to do that. I was a cobbler. I fixed them when they were broken. His humility was disarming, and that was the mark of his ministry. He translated, he proclaimed the gospel with the utmost humility, and he took a country by storm in that posture. Humility. If people are going to reject the message of the gospel we share, friends, let it not be because of the prideful way that we share it. The gospel is offensive enough. Being confronted in your sin which is what the gospel does, is offensive enough. We don't need to add to it through our pride. Do it with humility. You notice how respectful and thoughtful he is in the marketplace there in the Areopagus, which is this raised hill in Athens. He says in verse 22, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. He doesn't say, you fools, you idolaters. No, he humbly comes alongside them and sees a bridge that he can build to the gospel based on what they're doing. Ah, there's a statue of an unknown God. Let me proclaim to you what this unknown God is. So he builds a bridge, he brings the gospel to bear. He finds a point of contact in his context to link and segue to the gospel. What does it look like for us in our context to build bridges to the gospel with people? Maybe it's teaching English as a second language to international students or workers. The nations are at our doorstep here in greater Boston. They're here. You know English. What would it look like to just come alongside somebody and and, and teach them? These are bridges to the gospel, to conversation, to doing life with people. Maybe it's sports, meetup groups, showed a picture of Scott preaching there. Scott was strategic. Hey, I like to play soccer, he thought. There's a group on Tuesday nights, Bedford High School, the field, at 9 o'clock, a group of men who play soccer. So he went to play soccer. Why? Because he likes soccer, and it's good exercise, but also it was a relationship-building opportunity that he could come and befriend people, and as the opportunity arose, bring the gospel to bear in those friendships. We need to build bridges with people In our context, we have multiple opportunities engaging people in humility and thoughtfulness, building bridges and bringing the gospel to bear as God gives us opportunity. So this fourfold progression of Paul's gospel ministry, we see a burdened heart for people, a thoughtful outreach to people. Thirdly, a powerful message to people. Paul stands on the Areopagus, this elevated place, this hill, And he proclaims this message in verses 24 through 31. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Paul's sermon. It's a powerful, contextualized message. Notice how he begins his message. The God who made the world and everything in it. When Paul dialogues and preaches to Jews, he begins with Abraham. When Paul dialogues with Gentiles, they don't, know, they don't have a clue about Abraham. He goes to creation. So that's where he begins here. The God who made the world and everything in it. He is speaking of one creator God. One true living God who created everything, which would have been radical to these polytheistic people who worshiped a pantheon of gods. Each one had some kind of role to play in their own origin stories. This is a radical message. And I wonder if we realize how radical it is today as well when we proclaim that there is one true God, creator of all that is. In highly sophisticated intellectual cultures, that kind of message is mocked. I remember doing some discipleship a number of years ago with a freshman at Harvard. This freshman had grown up churched. He grew up learning the things of God, hearing the gospel, seeing it displayed by his parents and in the lives of the people at his church. But as he entered Harvard, the battle began. In one of his freshman seminar courses on cosmology and origins, they had a discussion. And another student asked a professor, Boldly, I mean, we're, we're talking about origins, and I'm just curious, like, how might God play into that? Might it be possible that God had a role in our origin? And after a long, dramatic, dramatic pause, the professor laughed at the student, laughed at the student, condescendingly mocked him. We live in a culture where the idea of a sole creator God is ridiculous. And I just want to encourage you to stay the course in the message. God is sufficient to defend himself. Yes, you will be stretched as people ask you questions that sometimes you don't know the answer to. Be humble enough to say, you know, let me do a little more digging on that, but then we can come back over a cup of coffee and talk. Don't make something up. Just, just be humble. Say, I've had a lot of people ask me questions. I don't know. Don't let that freeze you from even sharing. Just say, hey, let me do some more digging, but would you be open to having another conversation about this? 
Don't be embarrassed to witness about God as creator. He will grow you and shape you and challenge you as you engage in these kind of conversations. And if you're here today and you're skeptical about Christianity, I mean, this idea of a creator God seems far out to you. I'm just thankful that you're here. Our church exists to be a safe place where people can ask these questions and enter dialogue and not be embarrassed or ashamed about questions that they have. So I would say to you, stay with us. Keep exploring. Keep reading. Keep asking good questions. There's no such thing as a silly question. And I would also say, we mentioned this on Friday night as well, things that you don't understand, there are things that perhaps you're skeptical about. Do the hard work of investigating and holding your doubts up to the same scrutiny that you do the things of God and displayed in the Bible. Doubt your doubts. Oftentimes, we let our misgivings about God, our doubts about God go scot-free. We don't hold them to the same scrutiny that we do. Evidence for the resurrection, evidence of a creator God. Be even-handed with your scrutiny. Doubt your doubts. Keep reading, keep exploring, keep investigating. Notice how Paul moves from the truth of a creator God to the truth that we are accountable to this creator God. See, in our culture, to not believe in a creator God is temporarily convenient because we escape accountability. But if we do believe in a creator God, that means we are accountable to him. How, our, how we live these lives matters because we will stand before him and answer Paul says that this God, this creator God, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then he attacks their idolatry in verse 19. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's not he does not reside in temples made by human hands. He doesn't need anything from you. You have to see how radical this message was before the Athenians. A number of years ago, Laura and I had an opportunity to go and travel to Athens. We went to the Areopagus, and you can see this inscription on the side of the hill there, Paul's full sermon that we just read in verses 24 through 31. And as you're reading this sermon, where Paul's saying, look, God does not live in temples made by human hands. He doesn't need anything from you. You need him. You're reading this, and then you look up behind you, and the most magnificent temple built, the Parthenon, is right above. So contextually, Paul is preaching something that would have been radical to the people. Friends, God doesn't live up there. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He doesn't need anything from you. Rather, and to the contrary, you need him. That was his message. Radical message. Powerful message. And when we think about that message in our context, it's equally radical. And we're called to herald it with courage and with love and winsomeness. I mean, consider the, the message of the gospel it is truly radical that Jesus, God, came in the flesh at the incarnation. God became a man, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, lived in obscurity for 30 years, and then suddenly began a public ministry that left people's heads spinning. 
In Nazareth, people said, is this not the carpenter? Is this not the son of Joseph and Mary? We know this guy. He was ordinary. And now he's proclaiming boldly. He's healing people. He's exercising demons. I mean, he was radical. And at the appointed time, he willingly laid down his life on a cross. He died on a cross, which seemed like the epitome of defeat, but it was the mechanism of conquering sin and death. From the world's perspective, it looked like a shame. But from God's perspective, it was the fulfillment of the plan. He was buried in a tomb and on the third day rose again. And anyone who believes in him is forgiven of all their sin. All their guilt is taken away. All their shame erased. They're made right in relationship with him. And they follow him forever. That's the gospel. It is radical. Don't soften the edges of it. It's radical. But as you share it, God uses it. He works in people's hearts. Paul invites these people to repent. But now God commands all people everywhere to repent. That's the response of the gospel. Believe and repent. Repent means to do a 180, an about face. You're going this way on Trapella Road towards Cushing. You do an about face, you go towards Waverly Square. It's a 180. It's a change of mind and heart going away from sin to the Savior. That's what he's inviting people to. Leave your idols, turn to Christ. That's our message today. Leave the lesser things you're worshiping and turn to the greatest thing worth worshiping, Jesus. He speaks of a coming day of judgment, of accountability. Verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus, the righteous one. This reality must motivate us in ministry. There is coming a day a day of reckoning, a day of accountability where all our deeds will be laid bare before the Lord and we will give an account and only those who've trusted in Christ will be saved. Because when God looks at us and all of us have filthy deeds, only those who trust in Christ whose blood covers their soiled record will be forgiven. Those who are not trusting in Christ will be condemned. This is the weighty reality and it ought to move us to share with all our hearts, with all our efforts, with people. We witness a burden for people, thoughtful engagement with people, a powerful message to people. Fourthly, and finally, in Paul's gospel ministry in Athens, we see a mixed response from people. A mixed response from people. Verses 32 through 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Notice the mixed response. Some mock him, some contemplate some more, some believe. Some reject Paul's message, some contemplate Paul's message, some believe Paul's message. And notice what the substance is that sifts people into these different categories. What is the substance that they're turning over? The substance is the resurrection. God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That man is the Lord Jesus. Then notice what he says. What's the assurance that Jesus is coming in judgment? What is the assuring proof, the down payment that he's coming in judgment? 
Paul says, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Don't miss this. It's Jesus' powerful resurrection from the dead that serves as a down payment that he's powerfully coming again to judge the living and the dead. Do you follow his argument? Because Christ rose from the dead victoriously, authoritatively, triumphantly, that's the down payment. That's the money down. He's coming again in judgment with power and authority. That's what he's saying. The resurrection is core to Christianity. Christianity rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is that central. If he's not been raised, what we're doing here is foolish. Our faith is futile, we're still in our sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's taken our sin. He's conquered our death. And the reality of his resurrection is the down payment that he's coming again in power to judge and hold us all accountable. Make no mistake, some will outright reject this message. Don't be discouraged. Keep plugging along. Keep sharing. Keep investing. Don't be discouraged by mockery. It will happen. If you're here today and it just seems like a fairy tale to you, this, this resurrection investigate, investigate, investigate. There was an empty tomb. No body was ever found. The disciples went from cowardly to courageous overnight. How did that happen? They saw their resurrected Lord with scars on his hands. 500 plus people, eyewitnesses, saw him. That was ample evidence. Explore it. Two books to read if you're curious about this. Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. That's a starting place. But then move on to N.T. Wright's work, Surprised by Hope just unpacks the reality of the resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection. N.T. writes, surprised by hope. Two helpful places to start. Some will mock, some will contemplate though. Some will be willing to hear us again on this matter as they did for Paul that day. Well, what do you do? Just keep walking alongside them. Keep walking alongside them. Keep sharing, keep listening, pointing people to Christ. And lastly, most encouragingly, there will be some who believe. The passage says that a couple people believed. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and then a woman named Damaris come to believe, and, and a few others. This is not explosive growth in Athens. This is not a superabundant harvest, is it? This is just a handful of people who came to believe. That's just realistic for us, isn't it? You should be encouraged by that. Some of our ministry will see abundant fruit. Sometimes we'll see no fruit. Sometimes we'll see a little fruit. Well, this was a little fruit situation. Just, just a little bit of fruit. Notice there's no letter in the New Testament to the Athenians. Paul didn't plant a church here. That wasn't God's will and purpose that day. But a few people did come to believe. A handful of people did believe. Friends, the measure of our success is not numbers, but is faithfulness. We are evaluated in our sharing of the gospel, not our saving of people. God does the saving. We're evaluated on our faithfulness in ministry, not our fruitfulness. Fruit bearing is the Lord's work. So have the right metric in mind as you consider your own ministry. And all of us, if you're a Christian, you're called to do ministry. 
we consider Paul's work in Athens, his burdened heart for people, his thoughtful engagement with people, his powerful message to people, and a mixed response from people. Be encouraged in your work. Be faithful in your work. Continue to sow seeds and know this. Some of the seeds we sow in this life will lie in the ground until we do, and then will sprout up and produce fruit. You gotta take the long view. We live in a culture of immediacy. God is eternal. Some of the seeds we sow in this life will lie in the ground until we do. Then we'll sprout up and produce fruit. Keep your hand on the plow. Watch people. Pray for a burdened heart. Engage wisely with them. Speak powerfully the gospel as you have opportunity. And trust the results to God. For fruit is his prerogative. We're called to be faithful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this truth of your death and resurrection, this message that we get to bring to bear on people's lives. God, I pray that we would just be faithful. I pray that you would help us, Lord, in the midst of our own discouragement or cowardice. Or would you burden our hearts, sensitize us to the spiritual needs all around us, help us not live numb to the need all around us. Lord, as I pray even now, put faces and names in the minds of your people here this week to love and serve. God, we do thank you for just the opportunity yesterday to see just hundreds of people enjoying a time of friendship and fun and fellowship at PQ Park. Lord, but may we be burdened by the need, the countless people there who need Jesus. And help us to take the next step of engagement with them as we have the opportunity. God, I pray for some friends in this room who are, are not sure where they stand with you. God, I pray that they would repent and believe. They would turn from sin, turn from idols to you, the living God, the one who alone satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.